The title of today's sermon is Conflict and is found in the book of Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you, loving you, serving you. Help us, Father, to be effective at that as we reach out to a world with the gospel of grace, to those who need to hear it. Help us, Lord, to conduct ourselves within the body of Christ in a way that makes the church attractive to others. Help us, Lord, stand for truth and doctrine as you've commanded us to. We ask now that you would speak through your servant using the word of God, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin by sharing with you an event that took place in the local church Sue and I attended in the 1970s in Chicago. The church had a very strong and controlling pastor who had brought on board an associate who was a fantastic singer and musician. This man was married to a lovely southern belle to whom he shared two children with. He served as the church's music minister, and also worked with the youth. The church was humming along. People were flocking to the services, partly because of the flamboyant style and lively music found there. One Sunday, after about two years of our attending, we noticed that the music minister was missing, and there was no mention of his vacation. But he and his family weren't there. The service came and went with no explanation. Much later on, we, we would learn that he had resigned his position to pursue other options. Well, that just didn't smell right to us. No one leaves their position overnight. Much later, we would be told through the grapevine that he'd been dismissed for in an inappropriate relationship with a teenage girl in the youth group. This man moved his family to California and began pastoring another church. This, of course, bothered Sue and me, that the church leaders would leave the congregation in the dark about such events. I don't wish to do that with you. I purposed in my heart that if I ever had the opportunity uh, to experience such a day, I would be honest and forthright with those to whom I served and led. So the question I'd like to consider directly this morning is how does a church deal with internal conflict? I'd like to deal with that biblically, and I'd like you to know the experience that I've shared in these past two weeks, as many of you know, Andy Stacy, our Christian ed director, suddenly resigned from his position and left. But his departure was not the result of some moral failure, as described in my opening, but by Andy's own personal convictions. The catalyst for this disagreement was the recent biannual membership meeting held two Sundays ago. During the membership meeting, several changes to the church constitution was proposed by the elders. Let me ask you to underline, underscore, highlight the word proposed. These several proposed changes to the church constitution were brought forward for the entire membership of Lacey Chapel to consider and then to vote upon at the next meeting in November. In the interim period, members were asked to submit their comments and suggestions about these proposed changes to the elders via email or by letter. You know my email and all the emails of the elders are on the back of the bulletin and they've been there for years. 
Now, let me be clear once more. These, were cha- these changes to the constitutions were proposed, and it's a process that must take place. It must happen within a minimum of two called meetings that are warned two weeks in advance, and then the changes are approved by the membership of those that are present. Now, the cause is very, very important. What were the cause for these suggested changes by the elders? These changes are rooted in the cultural changes that are taking place in the larger society around us. As you know, there's been a cultural implosion taking place not only in Washington State, but in the whole of America and the world. As you're well aware, the godless liberals have taken over not only Washington, D.C., but Olympia as well. What they call good, God calls evil. And what they call evil, God calls good. This godless antichrist, which has caused these changes in our culture, has prompted changes in our church constitution. However, these changes were not initiated by any elder at Lacey Chapel, but came from the Christian legal defense organization by the name of the Alliance Defense Fund. They alerted not only Lacey Chapel, but every local church in America the urgent need to update their constitutions in such a way that we would be able to legally defend ourselves against the evil social zealots that have attacked the church in the past and continue to do so. This evil might include forcing churches to hire homosexual staff members, to include homosexuals in the membership. This has caused the church uh, to anticipate changes to their constitution, but this legal bulletin uh, was the impetus for it. There is also the danger of churches like Lacey Chapel being forced to perform homosexual weddings under the threat of prosecution under the law. So, as you know, these changes in the culture continue to expand and go on and on. Now, you should know that the Alliance Defense Fund was founded by Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, Larry Burkett of Crown Financial Ministries, James Dobson of Focus on the Family, D. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries, Marlon Maddox of International Christian Media, and Donald Wildman of America Family Associates. All of these men are men of integrity that love the church. They certainly have the church's best mind and interest. Now, as you know, I've been serving in church ministry since 1975, a total of 39 years. I've served in every capacity one can serve at, as in a local church. I've attended or pastored every type and model of local church that exists. I've pastored in many different kinds of polity or church government. I've been involved in Congregationalist-type government, Presbyterian-style government, and now elder-led-style government. Thank goodness I've never had to, to perform as a pastor in an Episcopalian-style church. Now, as you know, the Bible describes the church in a number of ways, and this is very important. The two main descriptions of the church are, as a first, as a living organism. The church is like a human body, and it consists of different parts and differing roles for each member of the body of Christ. Secondly, the Bible also describes the church as an organization. 
The church has been set up with leaders and guidelines found in the New Testament for its smooth running and the fulfillment of its God-given purpose. As the one and only divinely commissioned organization, the Lord himself has devised and designed a plan for godly leadership to direct the church to spur growth, purity, outreach, and the holiness of it. Throughout church history, however, there have been three primary expressions of church government that have been systematized and implemented. I'd like to share those three with you so that you are aware of them. The first type of church polity or church government is what is called the Episcopal style of church government. The word Episcopal should raise flags in your heart and minds. The English word comes from the Greek term episkopos, and it is a a term that refers to bishops. We see this type of polity in most liberal churches that go by the Eastern Orthodox faith or Coptic or Roman Catholic or Anglican. Some Methodist and Lutheran churches are also episcopal in style. As I said previously, I've never served or attended a church with this type of polity. This form of government finds its roots in the writings of the early church fathers, especially one man named Ignatius. He was the bishop of Antioch in the second century, and he modeled his church government on the hierarchy of of government style found in the Roman Empire. He set up the bishop to control a group of churches and the priesthood connected with it. This kind of church policy mimicked the political construct of the presiding culture with its strengths and flaws. The Episcopal form of church government is based upon the secular model seen in Rome, which has an empire who reigned over it. In Ignatius' view, the secular world was ruled by the uh, the emperor, and he ruled over the physical realm, while the bishop reigned over the spiritual realm. Episcopal-style churches abound today, the classic example being the Roman Catholic Church. Certainly, this form of polity does prove itself to be efficient in some ways, but it allows for great corruption and is a very danger, as we've seen in the recent past with, with the Catholic Church. Now, the second style of church polity, which developed in early church history, can be traced to the Reformed period, 1500 to the 1800s. This congregational-style government draws its name from the independence of the local congregation. It was the result of the rebellion by those within England and other European nations against the authority which controlled them and the experience they had under the Episcopal-style polity of their day. This style of church congregationalism was brought to the United States by the pilgrims and uh, they implemented it because they were looking to escape the uh, persecution they experienced under Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism. They based their congregational style government on the principles found in the Magna Carta about democracy the belief that Christ is the sole head of his church and that each member is a high priest unto God was the direct result of congregational polity. This renewed emphasis on the priesthood of each believer is rooted in the democratic process of the congregational form of government. 
This style has dominated the Protestant church since the Reformed movement came into existence. Congregational forms of church government is typified in Baptist churches. Congregational government includes pastors, deacons, and trustees. However, the power is said to reside within the congregation, which then votes on such things as yearly budgets, church programs, property, and leadership. One of the main drawbacks to congregational-style government is the divisiveness that springs up within individuals who tend to control the congregation uh, based on their own personal desires and thoughts. The congregational polity of government is the direct result of the overthrow of the divine rights of kings uh, in Europe in the 16 and 1700s. It was then intertwined with mixed with the Enlightenment of the 1700s and Locke's view of natural law. These philosophies were all imported into the congregational-style government. As you know, John Locke derived his concepts of basic human egalitarianism from the theological doctrine of imago dei, which are based on man's image. However, one of the consequences of following this concept that all human beings are created equal and free and that the government needs to be governed by the consent of the people is it leads to anarchy at times. We see this imagine deo fleshed out in the John Lockean view we find in our Declaration of Independence where George, excuse me, Thomas Jefferson echoed Locke in his writing of the unalienable rights of man in the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with, unalien- with certain unalienable rights that are among those, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Lockean idea that government needs the consent of the governed was fundamental to the Declaration of Independence and to the American revolutionaries justifying their revolution against the crown. Now, the third form of church government is known as Presbyterian-style government. The word presbytery is a transliteration of the Greek word presbyterion. The collective nouns... Presbyterio is where we get the term elder from. It might have been better if the NAS had translated Presbyterian as eldership since it occurs several times in the New Testament texts of Luke and Acts in that form. So the Presbyterian polity means the church is led by a group of elders rather than by congregational form of government. This means the congregation will have limited say in the major decisions of the church. This also means that only those who meet biblically qualified standards for leadership can share in leading the body of Christ. One of the drawbacks of this system is that for some it can foster an us-against-them kind of attitude. The elders are always pictured by some in the congregation as uh, being lording it over or other, lording it over others. The elders are pictured as a balanced level of efficient accountability, though, in the scriptures rather than the uh, previous view. At Lacey Chapel, we hold to a modified version of Presbyterian polity. I prefer to call it an elder-led church polity. We have embraced this kind of church polity because we believe it to be thoroughly biblical and vastly superior superior to the other forms. 
Now, let's examine what the Bible teaches about church polity and eldership. First of all, as a caveat to avoid any confusion, let me say this. I heartily agree with the Congregationalist who states that every believer is a high priest. That is true. Every individual will determine for themselves their own belief system. That individual's belief cannot be determined by a pastor, by a church board, by an elder, by a bishop, a deacon, a priest, or a pope. The individual has the right and the responsibility to determine his or her own truth and convictions based upon that truth. However, those convictions do not stop at the church door. But the church is made up of a collection of individuals within the organism called the body of Christ. It is an organization. Now, that organization does not negate your ability to think or believe whatever truth it is that you think is in concert with, Christ, with Scripture. However, here's the rub. When you, re, when you unite yourself with a local visible body called the church, you are becoming part of that said organization. And to be part of any organization, you must work in cooperation with others who have chosen to bind themselves around certain principles and truths that they believe are derived from the Word of God. Usually, these are stated in a doctrinal statement found in church constitutions. Along with the church constitution comes other principles known as bylaws, which is also based on supposedly the scriptures and is a guide to have a smooth running organization. But we cannot mix up these two separate concepts of organism versus organization. The first speaks of the individual part in the body, while the other speaks of the corporate gathering of those around like-minded principles for the furthering furtherance of the gospel. If one mixes up those two, then that person is headed for theological trouble. Now, I specific, now specifically, I believe the Bible teaches God uses godly men who have been identified by the organization to guide the membership into the purposes that he has for the church. As you know, the Lord Jesus called 12 men to be his disciples. He called them to work Together, and they did so, turning the world upside down. They did so not by their own personal choices or understandings of biblical principles, but those that they agreed upon, in which Christ left in a manual called the Bible. He left that for the church to operate by, so that we can live and work together in ministry in harmony with one another. Eldership is a new concept, excuse me, is not a new concept, however, brought up by the writers of the New Testament. It is deeply rooted in the Old Dispensation. In other words, in the writings of the Old Testament prophets. Now, I'm sorry to say that I don't have time to go into depth about the teaching on this subject in the Old Testament. But the idea of eldership is deeply rooted in the nation of Israel. In fact, it's found in every book of the Old Testament, and primarily we find its roots in the books of Moses. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament narratives knows that the people were led by and submitted to a council of elders. Eldership was one of the fu fundamental institutions within the nation of Israel. Eldership functioned as God's representatives to him, as we read in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 7. Moses called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. 
Notice Moses doesn't call the congregation together. He calls together the eyes, the ears, and the voice of the people, known as the elders of the people. When God spoke to the elders, he was speaking to the people. Unfortunately, there's no explanation in the Old Testament of the origin, the appointment, or the qualifications of elders in the nation of Israel. Eldership, however, is mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament. Elders are intimately involved in every crucial decision within the history of the nation of Israel. From the time they were slaves in Egypt, the elders provided leadership to the people. God acknowledged the eldership's role by sending Moses to them to announce his decisions to the people. The truth is, elder-led government was well-suited to this patriarchal, family-oriented society as is found in the nation of Israel. When the nation settled down into the promised land, every tribe and every city had a council of elders. Let me say that again. Every tribe and every city had a council of elders. These community leaders were supposed to protect the people, to exercise discipline, to enforce the law of God, and to administer justice fairly. According to the law, elders had far-reaching authority in every area of life, including civil, domestic, and religious matters. The elders functioned as a judicial body, ruling on such things as murder and stealing and every infraction that one can think of in law. The task of the elders was to judge, but also it was to counsel the people. Their work included not only trials, as just described, but intervening in family matters. This required the elders to have an intimate knowledge of the law. They were, therefore, to communicate that law and its understanding to the people of God, regularly, publicly, and in logical order so that it might be obeyed. Under the old economy, the elders were required to be men of wisdom and discernment. We clearly see this in the Old Testament. Uh, For example, in the book of Proverbs and uh, in the book of Job, Job states specifically this, Wisdom is with aged men and long life is understanding. To be an elder in Israel, then, one must be a man of wisdom and counsel. The prophet Ezekiel wrote about the differences in the offices found in Israel, the differences between prophets, priests, and elders. He summed it up this way. Disaster will come upon disaster. Rumor will be added to rumor. Then they will seek a vision from the prophet, but the law will be lost from the priest and counsel from the elders. Again, this is a righteous man named Job who tells us sovereignly that God uses elders' discernment and judgment as counselors. We also read in Job chapter 20, he deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. So we see that God gives discernment to the elders who lead the nation of Israel. So a quick overview of the old dispensation reveals that God has sovereignly placed wise and discerning men to lead his children in every area of life to judge civil matters, and religious matters as well. They are to help the people to live in harmony with one another. Now there's a whole lot more. I could spend hours on speaking about eldership from the Old Testament, but time restrains me. I must move on to what is most important to us. That is the paradigm that we use in the church. I've already discussed the three 
views of church government found in the Bible, found in uh, church history. However, we must be very careful to differentiate between church history and what's found in Scripture. We also need to differentiate between the life of Christ and eldership then and eldership in the church age. When Jesus ministered in Israel, as we've seen in the book of Luke, there were local and national Jewish elders. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 18, he speaks of the local Jewish elders, I should say chapter 7, and a certain centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die and when he heard about it Jesus when he heard about Jesus he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave here we see that Jewish elders are involved in the life of the people in the capacity that has been talked about in the Old Testament exactly who these elders were and how they attained their position is not well known to scholars but we know that they exercised power and authority during the earthly life of Jesus within the synagogue system and within Judaism. Now we move on to the New Testament and the role of eldership is fleshed out by the writers and the apostles. The Old Testament concept of eldership comes to full fruition under the new economy of grace as taught by the apostles and writers of the New Testament. The New Testament shows that uh, the pastoral oversight of the church was to be performed by a group of godly men called elders who would rule over the church. As you know, evangelists like Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and Timothy spread the gospel to the whole world, the geographical world as known uh, under the Roman Empire. Most of these areas were diverse in ethnicity and culturally. But the evangelists went there and planted churches from Rome to Spain to uh, what is Russia now and, and to Africa. Each of these planted churches needed leadership. So the evangelists identified and appointed men that they called elders to lead the new believers. This process took place in every church recorded in the New Testament. Elder rule was the norm, was instituted by God and put into effect by his evangelists, Paul, Timothy, Barnabas, Silas, and all the others. We see this, this recorded for us in the book of Luke, excuse me, in the book of Acts, recorded by Luke. He writes, for example, in Acts chapter 11 and verse 30, And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. The missionary team was sent, notice here, to the elders of the local church for their approval and blessing. They were not sent to the local congregation for a vote. In James chapter 5, we read something else about eldership, beginning in verse 14. James writes, Is there any sick among you? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to come and pray over him. They did not call for a prayer team. They did not dial up some ministry on the phone. They did not place their hands on the TV. They called for the elders of the church. Why? Because every church had elders. This is the very early days of the church. James is one of the earliest books written. And when conflict broke out between the differing groups within the church, there was the elders who decided the conflict. For example... 
In the Jerusalem Council, there was conflict that broke out between the Jews and the Gentiles over the very gospel itself. How would this conflict be resolved? Did God send a message down from heaven? Did he write it in the skies? How would this be resolved? The question was brought to the elders who resolved the conflict uh, of this question and many others. This particular question was over whether works were required for salvation. In Acts chapter 15, where where the council of Jerusalem is spoken of, we read this. Two men... Paul and Barnabas had great discussions and debates with them, that is, those that they were in conflict with, the party of the circumcision. The brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. They did not call for a membership meeting. They did not count hands to find out if there was a quorum. Instead, they took the issue directly to then the apostles and the elders to be resolved. Down in verse 4 of the same chapter, we learn when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and by the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done for them. Here the representatives from the Gentile church come from Judea, they come to Jerusalem, and they ask the apostles who were still alive then and the elders to resolve this conflict. Does a Gentile need to be circumcised on the eighth day like Jewish boys in order to be saved? That was the question. Down in verse 6 of the next chapter, it says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. They came to discuss it. They came to do their due diligence, to pray about it, to look at the scriptures, and to search for an answer. And once they had done their due diligence, they came together according to verse 22 of the same chapter, Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas, and leading men amongst the brethren, and they sent them this letter by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and in Sicily, who are the Gentiles, greetings. And then they go on to explain the resolve for the conflict that has taken place. I'm not going to read the rest of it. You can do that for yourself. But the decision that the elders in concert with the alive apostles at that time made a decision, and it was approved by the church and then sent on to the Gentile churches in Judea and beyond. As a point of clarification, you need to understand that the elders, or excuse me, the apostles were part of the eldership team in the church. That was done away with in the, when the apostles were taken off the scene by death. So we see the early church has elders that decide the important issues and it is supported by the people of the congregation. This holds true throughout the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament. For example, in chapter 14, it states in the book of Acts that in the churches of Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, there were appointed elders for them. And it's, let me underscore this, in every church, Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. This is also reinforced by Luke when he writes about Paul's meeting with the elders from Ephesus at the port city of Miletus. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 16, it says that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and he called to him the elders of the church. Paul didn't call the congregation. He didn't call the pastor. He didn't call the missionaries. He called the elders of 
the church. He didn't call the priests or the bishop. He didn't call anyone else by any other title. He called the elders of the church. Now, before I move forward to the next point, I'd like to address the issue of definition of elder, which is a bugaboo for many people. The term elder refers to an office, and it uh, has many meanings associated with it from Scripture. However, the term elder predominates those terms used to describe these same church leaders. Unfortunately for some, that term elder conveys many wrong ideas other than those found in the New Testament. For example, many people think of elders as lay people, lay men, church board members, people who are separate and distinct from the professional ordained clergy. And I say to that, may it never be. We don't believe in church clergy. We believe in a board of elders, men who are qualified and called by God, including myself. We believe in a first among equals. That is, I am first among the elder boards, but equal to them. The only reason I am first is because I have been paid to publicly speak on Sunday mornings. But I, Bud and Dave, and anyone else who would join our elder board are equals and co-pastors one with another. Oftentimes, the bogus terminology board of elders has dominated the thinking of New Testament churches. We are not a board. We are a group of men who pastor a church. We are not a board. According to Strong's lexicon, the Greek word for elder is presbytos, as I shared earlier. It's used 64 times in the New Testament and speaks of an older man, the eldest one advanced in years, or as a title for a rank or office in the church. It is used of those who preside over church gatherings. Elders in the New Testament is often interchangeable with several other terms that are used. As you know, uh, elders are godly men who are not directors or executives or over departments. They are a group of men who are godly and called to lead. This group of biblically qualified men jointly pastor the local church, and they are identified by their character by the congregation. So if we are to understand the New Testament concept of eldership, we must educate ourselves as to what the New Testament teaches about eldership and discard those cultural indications or or understandings we have from other sources. The term elder, as I said, is used synonymously with several other terms. For the first of that, which I'd like to refer to, is the term overseer. Now, the term overseer is derived from the Greek word episcopus. In English, uh, it developed a meaning that was quite different from its biblical usage. Unfortunately, it went on to be identified with the ecclesiastical titles found in churches like Catholicism, basically Rome back in the early church, bishop. This misuse of the term bishop, of one who presides over many churches and clergy, is important because an overseer was not such a term, nor was it used in that way in in the Greek language. Overseer was the most common designation for Greek and Roman public office, and it stands in contrast to the titles of other church leaders that have arisen since. It stands in contrast to terms like priest or prince or king. Overseer suggests a humble character of a servant 
of the church. Both of the terms, elder and overseer, can be used synonymously of the same office. Now, we believe that the writers of Scripture pen the works pen their works by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So these titles were chosen by God very carefully to describe the work and the person that would uh, inhabit that office. It's critical to understand this for a smooth running of the organization of believers called the church. Otherwise, the office will not reflect the biblical model that God intended. An elder in a local church is to be a spiritual man who oversees the congregation. Another term for the office of elder, then, is overseer. But this group of men can also be identified by the title pastor. There's one specific case in which one man is designated as pastor-teacher. That would be the first among equals. Other terms that are used in the New Testament are terms like shepherd, The elder overseer pastor is also called elder. Here at Lacey Chapel, we like to use the terms interchangeably, but often rely on the one phrase or one title, elder. All elders are pastors. All elders are overseers. All elders are shepherds. We are accountable to one another. What I would like to point out is that we are not a board of elders. We are not any kind of ecclesiology ecclesiology or ecclesic getting my words wrong here ecclesiastical board that rules over your life that's a misleading concept but we are shepherds and overseers as the bible defines it now more specifically i'd like to share with you the instructions concerning the office of elder given by paul to titus in first timothy he writes to timothy It's a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnaciousness, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil." Once again, let me say that we do not have time to go into all that this text has to offer on eldership. So let me just highlight a few things. First, the man who desires or wants to be an elder or overseer is desiring a good thing. It is a fine work to do, says Paul. However, not just any man can desire this office. He must be fit for it. He must possess the character traits that are outlined here in this text by Paul in order to be a successful elder. You may want to examine this text and Titus for yourself when you go home to familiarize yourself with those character traits. What I'd like you to notice is that these character traits are laid out in great detail and in specifics. Why? so that the elder will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Next, we're going to look at the instructions that Paul gives Timothy concerning the duties of an elder in the local church, which are found in the same book, 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. There he explains, 
the elders who rule well are to be concerned are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses, the standard found in the Old Testament. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Paul instructs Timothy that the elders of the church are to rule well, that English word comes from the Greek term proistomai, which is used five times in the New Testament. And strong, set, strong defines it as saying it means to maintain, to be over, or to be placed before. It is used of those who are set over, who superintend or preside over others. In other words, the elders are to be the protector or the guardians and the carers for the flock of God. Clearly the meaning here is that the elders are the shepherds over the flock of God to superintend, to protect, and to guard them against untruth and against the wiles and the work of the devil. The character of such a man will enable him to be able to do this. He will then rule well because his character is like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I could say much more on this, but again, because of time, I need to move on. Let us look at one more text, the text that Bud read for us, which the, uh, the uh, instructions on your bulletin were my fault. I put chapter 1 by mistake. It's chapter 5 of uh, 1 Peter, the first five verses. You can find this on page 1214 of the Pew Bible. We're going to go through it really quickly, so I'm not going to keep you here forever. First of all, notice, we see here that elder rule is being expressed by Peter in verse 1. He says, I exhort the elders among you. He assumes that they have eldership. As your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and the partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Please note that Peter, a disciple of Jesus, an an apostle, clearly equates himself and aligns himself with other elders. He refers to himself as a fellow elder, not as a disciple, not as an apostle, albeit he was an eyewitness to the events of the life of Jesus. Here Peter shows us what true elder rule is as he shares with his fellow elders saying this in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntary, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. The clear instruction for elders then and now is to shepherd the church. What does it mean to shepherd the church? Since the work on the local church ministry cannot be a one-man show, according to the Bible, it requires that a team of men work in harmony with one another. Shepherding the flock requires several shepherds who oversee and watch the flock. One man cannot stand guard over the sheepfold 24-7. It requires a number of shepherds to be out there with the sheep. The sheep must see the shepherd. How could it be if the shepherd was never with the sheep. So the shepherds go to care for the sheep when they are sick. The shepherds scold the sheep when they are disobedient. The shepherds encourage the sheep. The shepherds feed the sheep. The shepherd rewards the sheep for job well done. All of this must take place with the right spirit, according to Peter, and be done in the right way so that they do not lord it over those sheep allotted to their charge, but to 
they must prove themselves to be examples to the flock. The sheep will follow the shepherd where he leads if they trust him, if they feel secure with him, if they feel safe with him. Now, looking back to verse 2, I want you to notice that the shepherd elders to exercise oversight over the sheep. He shows them where to go. He leads them to water. He keeps them from falling into ditches and crevices. He does this all according to the will of God spelled out in the scriptures, which he is supposed to be an expert in. The sheep's oversight is not from God himself, but but from the shepherd whom God has placed over them. God has provided the sheep with guides to help them called elders, but elders must do it with the right attitudes and motivations. The shepherds are not to do this for self-promotion or financial gain. As an overseer, the elder must shepherd the sheep rightly. He must be an example of a humble servant leadership. And if he does so, he will rule well. Then when the chief shepherd appears, according to verse 4, he will receive an unfading crown of glory. That's specifically um, held for elders. They are the ones that will receive this crown at the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is at that time that God will acknowledge them specifically for a job well done, and he will grant to them some kind of reward. I assume that will be further service in the kingdom that is to come. Now, the truth is, uh, this reward is said to never fade, never tarnish, and will never be discarded. It's not like rewards that gather in our drawers at home or are put in boxes in our attics. These rewards in heaven will be on display for everyone to see. In fact, we know that 24 elders, 12 from the, uh, from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament, will rule in heaven along with Christ on 24 thrones. Now, Peter now looks to a group of men, particularly, who have trouble with eldership. He says to them that they are to look to these older men entitled elders and to imitate them. Peter gives instructions to younger men who desire to serve Christ, saying, You younger men, be subject to your elders. There's no escaping the truth of that. This is a command of God and not optional. And all of you, that means Elders and young men, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? In practice, it is not. Peter says to all the young bucks out there, if you want to be an elder of the church, then here's what you need to start with. First of all, you need to be subject to your elders. You learn from them. You sit underneath their mentoring. You show you are able to follow before you can lead. The Amplified Version, which I don't often quote in my sermons, but it says this, Likewise, you are younger and of lesser rank. Be subject to the elders, that is the ministers, the spiritual guides of your church, giving them due respect and yielding to their counsel. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility as the garb of a servant that it that its covering cannot possibly be stripped from you with freedom from pride and arrogance towards one another. For God has set himself against the proud, the insolent, the overbearing, the disdainful, the presumptuous, the boastful. 
boastful. He opposes, frustrates, and defeats them, but gives grace and favor and blessings to the humble. So does that mean elders get to walk all over the younger men? Do we get to order them around, paint this, clean that, do this, do that? No, may it never be. But it does say that the younger men are to obey their elders. The Greek verb that is used there is hupotasso, and it means to be arranged under the command of another. In non-military use, literature it was used of a voluntary attitude of cooperating with uh, to carry a burden. So younger men are to voluntarily place themselves under the guardianship and authority of the elders whom the Lord has providentially placed in rank and role above them. Unfortunately, some young men see this as a generational war rather than a cooperation. This conflict can all be avoided if such younger men will simply follow Peter's clear instructions. If they will, if they obey with humility, which is a really hard thing to do, when you are convinced that someone else is wrong, you will be blessed for it once you reach your final destination in heaven. A famous writer from the 1800s by the name of Mark Twain once quipped about his own father. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Younger men should obey their elders without arrogance or self-pride, for pride cometh before the fall, says this text. I'd like now to close our time of worship with the hymn. They'll know we are Christians by our love. As Dan comes, let Dan, Dan comes with the worship team, let me pray, and as we close, and then we will sing together and have our short membership meeting. Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful for the word of God that instructs us and gives us clear doctrinal truth and principles by which we are to live and conduct ourselves and our church. May we, Father, always look to Scripture and obey it. In Christ's name, amen.